Welcome to Grace again. Good morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 5. So if you will find that place in your Bible. As you just heard me say in the prayer, we're going to bounce a little bit today. We're going to go to Psalm 80 after that. And then we're going to end up in John 15 where we've already been reading and praying. Thank the Lord for his word. If you're new to Grace today, I've met some folks visiting. Welcome. We're working our way through the book of Isaiah. And I mentioned that to a visitor today who is familiar with Isaiah. And she realized this is a long book. How long is this going to take? We're just going to go. Today we're in Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 could be seen as a conclusion, really, of the introduction to the whole book of Isaiah. The early chapters, chapters 1 through 5, have shown us the failings of Judah and Israel. These failings are laid before God's people and the reader of the book. But these messages in these early chapters are mixed. Not only is there sin and judgment, there are glimpses of hope. Hope in the form of God calling his people back. The Lord has already said numerous times in these early chapters, Come back, come and reason, come and return, come and repent, come and walk in the light of the Lord. There's a message of a hopeful future for all who are in Christ, all who remain the remnant of faith. These charges that the Lord has brought against his people, we call them an introduction because they're setting up next week's chapter, chapter 6. The call of Isaiah. The call, the context in which the call comes is the need and the sin of God's people so that God raises up a prophet, Isaiah, to speak the word of the Lord to the hearts of people who have gone astray. We're anticipating next week. I so am ready for Isaiah 6. So what are the judgments and the pronouncements that God has made upon his people in the first five chapters? In chapter 1, and these judgments, by the way, come in such a personal nature because with each one you can hear the longing heart of God. The first one, he says, my children, oh, my children. It's not cold and stern and distant. It's God with a broken heart looking at his people saying, my children, And then he says, you've rebelled against me and you don't know me and you're loaded down with iniquity. And then in chapter 3 he says, my people, my people. This is a covenant God. It's a relational God. My people. He says, you've stumbled and you've fallen because of your sin. And now here in chapter 5, he says, my vineyard. You've produced wild grapes. You're unusable, you're unproductive. You're a vineyard unprotected now. You're laid waste, you're held captive because you've rejected the law of the Lord. So today again, we're hearing the charge of the Lord he brings against his people. And that's why we're gonna look beyond Isaiah 5, beyond the charge of unfaithfulness to the faithful vine, Jesus Christ, in whom we abide. There is our hope, he is our salvation And so we're going to hear that today. Stand with me in honor of God's word. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5. 
Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down, and I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they, may, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, are, they are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. What was it that God wanted for his people? What did he want for them? He wanted a people for himself. This is what God wanted, revealed all through the Bible all in the Old Testament where we are. He wanted a people for himself. God wanted to show them his glory and he wanted to show them his grace. He wanted for his people that they would know him, to know the Lord. He wanted for his people to live in a covenant relationship with him, a relationship of love a relationship of loyalty. This is what God wanted. He wanted them to bear good fruit. And that means the Lord wanted His people to glorify His name among the nations. He raised up a people so they would be light to the nations. God wanted this the language of Isaiah 5 says he wanted a faithful vineyard but instead they failed Isaiah 5 ends with failure now before I go any further I want to remind you that central to the Bible at the, at the center, core of the Bible's teaching is that God loves His people. He loves His people. Never doubt that. Don't ever doubt God's love. There's another way of saying don't ever doubt God. God is love. Every word of judgment that we read in the Bible 
is for the purpose of discipline. Discipline is a form of God's love, and it comes from God's love. Discipline always comes from the Lord with a way back. It always comes with a calling back, a calling to repentance. God's children, God's people, God's vineyard are disciplined because God is calling them back to their Father, to their God, to their Lord who loves them and who wants for them to be the people who actually enjoy God. What does God want? He wants His people to actually enjoy Him, to know Him in His beauty and His perfections and His grace and His love and His forgiveness, to actually enjoy the Lord. It may be the first time you've ever heard the word enjoyment and God in the same sentence. But this is what He wants and has always wanted. And in the enjoyment of God, God wants for His people to reflect His glory the glory of enjoying Him, the glory of the reasons to enjoy Him, His holiness and His beauty and His grace and His mercy and His love, to reflect that to all the nations. Now, I say that because without that overarching truth, without that core central truth of God's love for His people, then a passage like Isaiah 5 leaves us with, the hedge is removed, the wall is torn down, It is overgrown with thorns and briars, and it is trampled and devoured and laid waste. If we don't understand the love of God, then we read a passage like this, and we say, it's over. But with the the truth of God's love, then even when we read Isaiah 5, we can look beyond it we can look past it to the light that is revealed as the word of God is unfolded more and more throughout history until we actually come to a man named Jesus so as we go through this morning keep him in mind you have to keep Jesus in mind and in your sight in a chapter like Isaiah 5 now you don't keep Jesus in your mind for the purpose of lessening the severity of the judgment. These are hard words, and they're true words, and they're words with weight to them. But we keep Jesus in mind and in our sight through this chapter to give us a reason to hope beyond it. And so keep that fixed right there as we go through. The text, Isaiah 5. I read just the first seven verses, but we're going to cover the chapter. Let me give you the structure. The first seven verses are a parable, a song, the song of the failed vineyard. The song is in the first few verses, and then the Lord speaks, and he asks questions that expose and convict, and then Isaiah comes back and identifies. And then in verse 8 and following, there's a series of woes and therefores. Woes. Sorrowful pronouncements of sin and of a dark and a desperate spiritual state. And the therefores, what's going to happen because of all of this? And as I said, we don't end here because 
the heart of people who are spiritually awake. The heart of a person who is spiritually alive, born again, with the Spirit of God residing in. That person hears this chapter and is stirred. When you hear the pronouncements of woes and judgment and therefore, when you hear the failure of the vineyard of God, the, the born-again heart hears this with the ears of the heart, sees it with the eyes of the heart, and is stirred to call out to God to do something. And that's why we'll go to Psalm 80. It's a prayer of restoration. And then God answers the prayer in the person of Jesus. That's why we'll go to John 15. So you see what's happening. I'm trying to, I'm trying to lead you into what's happening these weeks. The word is unfolding in history. The unfolding of your word gives light, Psalm 119 says. The unfolding of your word gives light. Isaiah is a fold. Psalm 80 is another fold, unfold. John 15 is, a, is the unfolding of the word that gets us to the light of Christ. So that's the structure of Isaiah 5, and it's where we're going. Isaiah 5. The first seven verses, as I said, are a parable. If you'll look at them, verses 1 and 2, are, it's the song portion of this parable. Isaiah is singing. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. The Lord is the beloved. Isaiah is the, sing, is the singer, and he's singing of the Lord's vineyard. And remember, it's a love song. That's why I spend so much time talking to you about the love of God. He says, my beloved chose a land and he cleared the land, and he prepared the land, and he planted choice vines on this land, and he put a tower in this vineyard, and he went ahead and hewed out the vat in anticipation of the wine that would flow from this vineyard as it bore good fruit. In verse 2, then he waited, and he looked, and he expected, but... And the song stops. But it yielded wild grapes. It's an absolute shock to Isaiah. The disappointment that's in that word. Wild grapes, meaning unusable, meaning not up to the standard that the beloved put these, this vineyard here for. And, and that's the end of the song. If we were writing the song, we'd say, well, that's verse one. There'll be a chorus in verse two and a chorus in verse, see, because you gotta keep going, but that's the end of the song. Verse three through six, now the Lord speaks. He speaks to the people of Jerusalem and to the men of Judah. These are his people. That's the point. His people, his chosen people. And he says in verse 3 and 4, you be the judge. Did I fail my vineyard? 
Did I fail to prepare the land? Did I fail to plant properly? Did I fail to provide? Did I fail to protect my vineyard? Or did my vineyard fail to bear the good fruit? He says, I did everything. There's nothing else I could have done. I did everything. Why then the wild grapes? Now we often ask why. And sometimes we ask why from a grieving heart. But sometimes we ask God why from a tone of accusation. Like the children of Israel when they came out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus. And they asked the Lord, why, they said. Why did you bring us out here? They weren't inquisitive. They weren't really even grieving. They were angry. They were accusing the Lord. Why did you bring us out here, Lord? To kill us? Wasn't there enough food back there? Why, Lord? And here, the Lord is asking the questions. He says, why? Why the wild grapes? It's a probing time here. It should be probing. It should be exposing. It should be revealing. It should be, it's, it's a convicting question designed to get at clarity, clarity in the moment. I've done everything I can do for my vineyard. Why the wild grapes? Verses five and six, this is what the beloved will do now for the vineyard. He'll leave them, he'll leave the vineyard unprotected. He'll let the vineyard be trampled and the vineyard will be laid waste. And then verse seven, Isaiah picks it back up. He's speaking again. Now, maybe in verse 7, we're supposed to see here that the people have been listening. They've listened to the song. And it was beautiful at first, and then it ended with that dark word, but. And then they heard the Lord saying, you be the judge. And we almost get the sense that the people are left going, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the vineyard of the Lord. That's the people of God. Yeah. Yeah, he planted them. Yeah, he protected them. Yeah, he provided for them. And they didn't do it. They didn't live up to it. They didn't bear the good fruit. They should be judged. And then Isaiah says, it's you. You're the vineyard. He identifies the vineyard as the people of the Lord, Israel and Judah. You're the pleasant planting. Initially, you were pleasant, but now you're full of injustice, unrighteousness, bloodshed, and outcry. And they're rocked back, and they realize that they've been exposed. They've been exposed. There's no room to say, those people. Isaiah said, you. It's weighty. Don't let the poetry make you think it's not weighty. You know, the parable really is the history of God's saving work through his chosen people up to this point. Up to this point. This is really, the, it's, a, it's a parable that's telling the history. God raised up a people through Abraham. God raised up a family through one man named Abraham. They became a large family. They went down into Egypt. They grew and they multiplied. They became enslaved in Egypt. 
God called them out of Egypt. Led them through Moses like a vine, like a vine, Psalm 80 says. He brought, he brought them out of Egypt like a vine. Led them through Moses. Then on with Joshua, he led them into a promised land. And God planted his people in the promised land like a vineyard with everything they needed. What more could he have done? God gave them his presence God provided for them everything they needed. God protected them from the nations around. God gave them land. God gave them the law. God gave them leaders. God gave them everything. And still they turned to their own ways. In verse 24 of Isaiah 5, he tells us they have rejected God's law and despised his word. And so the trampling, the trampling is coming. It's going to come in the form of exile. He says it. Verse 13, my people go into exile. And it happened. The history is that shortly after Isaiah is making this prophecy, the Assyrians are going to come in to the northern part of God's people, Israel, and take them over. And shortly after that, a little over 100 years later, the Babylonians are going to come into Judah, the southern part, and take them over and take them into captivity. It's a parable of history. It's a parable of a failed vineyard. And then it moves on. So does it move on for good? Not yet. The rest of the chapter is a series of woes and therefores. Woe. That's a word, isn't it? Woe. It doesn't mean slow down. Like, whoa. It's the opposite of blessing or blessed. It's a sorrowful state. It's a pronouncement against someone showing the pitiful spiritual state they're in and the reasons that the judgment is coming. And what does he say? He gives six of them. And just let your eyes follow. I'll say them quickly and you can read them when you go home. First, he says, woe, verses 8 through 10. Woe to you because of your greed Land grabbing in violation of God's law explicitly written down in the book of Leviticus in chapter 25. And now because of their greed, they have such huge houses sitting empty and land lying unproductive while people in need woe to you. Second, verses 11 and 12. Sinful excess while forgetting the Lord. One of the main warnings that God gave to his people after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and put them in the promised land was this. You're going to get a lot and be very productive and I'm going to bless you and you're going to turn right around and say, look what my hand has provided for me and you're going to forget me and they did it. And we do too. Third, verses 18 and 19. He describes them as pulling cartloads of sin with ropes of falsehood and deceit while treating God's word and his work with an obligation. Let's just get on with that so we can go back to sinning. Oh. Verse 20, the fourth woe, placing themselves above God and trying to redefine reality. 
Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, and who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What is happening here? They're trying to rename things. But they can't redefine reality. The dignity of Adam in the garden before the fall, before sin, was that God allowed him to name what God had already created and and defined. But the arrogance of sinful people, fallen man, is that we think that we can define by naming and we think that we can redefine by renaming. Woe to you who call good evil. Number five, verse 21. Woe to you for relying upon human wisdom and not God's wisdom. Number six, verses 22 and 23. Woe to you for taking bribes and and for your personal gain and, and taking bribes to pervert justice and letting the guilty people go free and not doing right by innocent people and getting paid for it by others. Woe to you, he says. And verse 24 is the heart of the matter. You have rejected my law and despised my word. Therefore, the the series of therefores, verse 13, he says, my people go into exile. They're going to be taken away. Verse 14 and 15, there's going to be a humbling coming. The best thing to do is humble yourself now before the humbling comes. Verse 24, Your bad fruit is going to turn into no fruit at all, and your land will be barren. Verses 25 through 30, the Lord is going to whistle. Whistle for the nations and calling them to come and use them to judge his people and to take them into exile. And then the chapter ends. What do you do when you come to the end and the end is not good? You know, there's a a tragedy. There's a tragedy in not pressing on. It's tragic to fold up the Word of God and not press on. To fold it up with this sort of arrogant hopelessness. It's devastating. It's like, oh, well, if that's what he's going to do, I'm done. Leading you down this path of hopelessness. It's tragic. The Bible says the unfolding of the Word gives light. So let the word unfold we come to the end of Isaiah 5 and it is it's the end of and it ends with judgment but unfold the word and you hear two things you hear that the Lord number one gives spiritual sight to the heart so that the person who hears this judgment is stirred are you stirred by Isaiah 5 like did anything happen to you as we read through that the born again heart gets gets stirred up to say something, to, to do this, to pray, to pray. I mean, what should be done 
in these hours that we live in. We should be stirred to pray, and that's what Psalm 80 does. And the second thing the Lord does is he answers the prayer. He pronounces it, he stirs you to pray, he answers the prayer. Isaiah, uh, or Psalm 80, you can turn there if you want, but I'm going to read a few verses to you. Isaiah chapter 80, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 80, verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. See, that's the prayer of a stirred up heart when you see that things are so bad that God's people are unproductive, unfruitful. You're stirred to say, restore us, God. Let your face shine upon us. Your glory, your countenance, your love, your grace, your mercy, let it shine upon us that we might be saved. And then you brought a vine out of Egypt. There it is, a vine. You drove out the nations and you planted it. Same thing Isaiah said. You, you cleared the ground for it. It took deep root, it filled the land. It's growing, it's a vineyard. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to, to the great sea and it shoots to the river. So why, why, Lord? You see, prayer calls out to God. Why, Lord, in a humble way, not an accusing way, in a humble way. Why, Lord, have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along pluck its fruit, the boar of the forest ravages it. And all that move in its field feed on it. Turn, Lord. Turn again to us, Lord, God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard on this vine. The stock that your right hand planted and the son whom, you, whom you've made strong for yourself. They have burned your vineyard with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. It's getting somewhere, folks. It's getting to Jesus. The son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then, then, Lord, when you visit us this way, when your grace comes to us this way, then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon you. Restore us, O God, Lord of hosts, let your face shine upon us that we may be saved. That's what you pray. That's what you pray when you, when you read a passage of judgment. The human heart, by God's grace, is, is stirred up. By God's grace, it's given spiritual sight to, to see the reality of both sin and grace. The human heart sees the sees human sinfulness like nobody else does. This is, this is a reality of the Christian life that we need to get. We need to understand this. We need to, we need to really get, we need to feel this and sense this. Nobody feels the depths of sin like a Christian, which is the opposite of what you may have been taught. You may have been taught, oh, he forgives sin, so guess what? You don't have to think about it again. When he forgives sin and he calls to holiness and when he sees his church veering off into the wrong direction and putting the bushel over the light, he's serious about it. And the heart that is, the mind that is opened by the Spirit of God actually comes to see the reality and the seriousness of sin, but all the more the reality and the beauty and the weight of grace that God forgives sin. Why, is, why does grace not move us? Why does God's grace 
not stir us? Why does it not cause us to sing at full voice? Why? Because we don't know the depths of the sin from which we have been saved. This is what he's saying. You see, the human heart is stirred when it sees this judgment by the weight of sin, but also by the grace of God. God gives this this gift of a stirred heart to cry out, restore us, O Lord, for mercy. We don't know the exact historical context of, of, of Psalm 80, but many people associate this psalm with Israel's defeat and captivity by, by Assyria, and so certainly this psalm was known to Judah, the southern kingdom, when the Babylonians came in, the very exile that he's talking about in Isaiah 5. Surely the, the psalm was known, and I can just imagine these people in the midst of being overtaken by the Babylonians, I can just imagine them in their exile and then their longing to go back to their land, just constantly crying out to the Lord, turn your face to us, restore us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, O Lord. How long, O Lord, will you let this go on? Your vine out of Egypt, O Lord. Your vineyard, the nation of your people that you raised up for your glory, now being ravaged. I can just, you can just hear them praying, turn to us, Lord. Turn your face to us, Lord. Be favorable to us, Lord. Give us grace, Lord. Do you know what this is? This is what we call the messianic longing. It's longing for a savior. And that's the cry and the prayer of this psalm. Do you know what they understood? They understood they could not manage their way out of a spiritual problem. They came to the realization that they could not manage their way out of a spiritual problem. They had a heart problem. They couldn't religion their way out of a spiritual problem. They couldn't fake their way out of a spiritual problem. They couldn't willpower their way out of a spiritual problem. They needed God. And that's why they prayed this way. Did God answer the prayer? The unfolding of your word gives light. And the word unfolds, and it unfolds to John chapter 15. The answer to the question, did God answer the prayer? And the answer to the prayer itself is found in the words of Jesus when he says to his disciples, I am the true vine. And does that astonish you? Does that touch you at the core of your being? It's 700 years after Isaiah prophesied. And Jesus Christ, a man of history and time and space, stood up and said to his disciples, I am the true vine. The light of Isaiah, in the light of Isaiah 5 and and Psalm 80, do you understand what this means? Jesus Christ is saying that where Israel and Judah failed, as the Lord's vineyard, Jesus, and only Jesus, is the faithful and true vine. He is saying, what what is being said here is what the remnant of Israel and Judah were praying from Psalm 80, Jesus Christ is. 
Only Jesus shines upon us in his grace and his mercy to restore us. And what does Jesus say to do about that to his vineyard? He says, abide in me. And do you know what that means? It means become the vineyard of the Lord. It means to bear fruit for the glory of the Lord by faith. It means to be united with Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus said in John 15, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Our purpose, brothers and sisters, our purpose, church, is to know the Lord. Our purpose is to love the Lord. Our purpose is to enjoy the Lord. Our purpose is to reflect the glory of the Lord to Nashville and Middle Tennessee and around the world. And only those, but all of those, who abide in the true vine, Jesus Christ, become the vineyard and fulfill that purpose of bringing glory to God. We can't grow our own fruit. We can't willpower our own fruit. Like a little child who's making a picture of a tree with fruit, we can't get out the tape and tape our fruit on. All we can do, but what we can do and what we must do and what we're being called to do is to abide in the vine. The life-giving power of the vine. Jesus Christ is life. He is a power. He is a force. He is a person. And it is abiding in Jesus that bears fruit. Say, okay, I'll abide, but how do I bear fruit? You missed the point. Abide and you will bear fruit. Believe. Repent. Come to Christ. Let Isaiah 5 expose your heart. Let all the Bible expose it. Just just let it, lay it bare before the Lord. He loves you. Remember how we started. He loves you. And he's drawing you. He's going to get personal with you because he wants to draw you in to himself. He wants you to repent. He wants you to believe. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to entrust your whole life to him. He wants you to abide in his love by keeping his commandments, to submit to him, to remain in him. There's, there's, there's power in abiding in Jesus Christ. This is the answer to the prayer, restore us, O Lord God Almighty. It's not to restore our fortunes. It's not to restore our plans or or our religion or or our moral willpower. No, it's to restore us by bringing us into Jesus Christ to abide in him. The focus has shifted from the failed people, whether it be Israel, Judah, Christians, the church. The focus has totally shifted from the people. The focus has shifted to the one and only faithful and true vine, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The church, by the way, is not a greater hope than Israel. Jesus is the only hope for Jew and Gentile and all nations alike. 
Jesus is the hope. So come to Christ. Let His face shine upon you. Abide in Christ and you will bear fruit. Father in heaven, thank you for your word today.